What kinds of things were you looking forward to in 2020? Things that ultimately were either interrupted or just outright canceled. Holiday time, time with your family, travel, that concert or that movie that you really wanted to take in. Perhaps you were looking forward to sitting in the stands and actually watching the Flames lose or the Riders win. Graduation, maybe you missed that as you typically would anticipate it. Perhaps attending that wedding in person or being able to mourn at that funeral in person. Job loss, business under stress. When we are anticipating something, and by necessity it gets put aside, it's difficult to swallow. And that's what happened to the writer of our text from Scripture this morning. He says, I was very much looking forward to one thing, but out of necessity, I had to set it aside. And I did this to contend for that which is most important. And then he calls out to all of those who are followers of Jesus, and he says, I urge you to do the same. And so we want to talk about that, and in particular, we want to consider two verses of Scripture, and there's one big idea in those two verses of Scripture. And the big idea is define the fight. Define the fight. And what Jude is going to suggest to us is we will never win the fight until we define what the fight actually is. You know, there's any number of fights that are worth engaging in in life, but to be honest, let's be honest with ourselves. Think about how often we spend time and emotion and energy engaging in the wrong battles in life. And how much of life do we waste when we're doing that? Today we're going to see from Scripture that there's one fight in particular, not that there isn't other fights, but there's one fight in particular worth going all in on. And it often takes everything we have to give. And so if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the second last book in the Scriptures, book number 65 right before the book of Revelation. And we're going to be reading, it's actually only one chapter, it's just a short little book. We're going to be reading verses 3 and 4 of the book of Jude. Turn with me in your Bible to that. And Jude writes this in verses 3 and 4. Listen to the thing he was anticipating and then what he had to end up doing. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation were written about, was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Last week, 
We began this little four-week series in the book of Jude, talking about Jude, and we said Jude was not only an apostle, but he was actually one of the brothers, one of four brothers of Jesus Christ. But during Jesus' public ministry, during the three approximate years that Jesus did public ministry, we see that Jude, even though he heard Jesus teach and undoubtedly saw Jesus perform miracles, he was not buying in. During that time of Jesus' public ministry, Jude was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was crucified and his mother Mary was standing there watching this all unfold and his best friend, Jesus' best friend John, was standing there comforting comforting Mary, Jude was nowhere to be found. He was not a follower of Jesus. And you would think, even if he wasn't a follower of Jesus, when your mom is going through that kind of a traumatic experience, seeing her eldest son murdered, executed, even though he's completely innocent. You would think Jude would have been there to support his mom, but Jude and the other brothers were nowhere to be found. Later, we don't know exactly when, but sometime after the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jude surrendered his life to Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus forgave this multi-layer betrayal, it was transformative in the life of Jude. And he was overwhelmed by the undeserved forgiveness and grace that Jesus extended to him. He understood fully, I didn't deserve this. There's nothing I did to earn this. It was completely beyond my capacity to know the grace and experience the grace of God unless he just gave it to me. And so Jesus extends this multi-layer forgiveness. And this is why Jude, who was completely changed by this, was absolutely convinced that this was a faith worth fighting for because it had transformed him from head to toe. And it was a faith that he was willing to risk everything for because we know that at this point in history, all the original apostles, with the exception of John, Jesus' best friend, all the original apostles had been martyred for the faith. Peter was crucified upside down. One of Jude's other brothers, James, was put to the sword. And the Romans were running around imprisoning and murdering or executing all the followers of Christ that they could scare up. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, were doing everything possible to attack the followers of Jesus. But interestingly enough, even though there's this incredible outward pressure, The church of Jesus Christ is thriving and growing exponentially at this point. And Jude is not focused in his book on this outward threat from the Romans, from the Pharisees. He is concerned in the book about the inward threat, the threat coming from within the church. And so like we have had numerous disappointments in 2020, 
he had this significant disappointment in his life. He says in the beginning of verse three, I was very eager. The Greek word there literally means to want very much to, to make every effort to. This is what he desperately wanted to do. He wanted to write to them about the salvation that we share. I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. He wanted to write to them, I'm assuming, about the grace that he had personally received. I'm just speculating, but maybe he wanted to tell a bit of the story of how he had not followed his brother, had not followed Jesus, even though he heard the stuff and saw the miracles. And he wanted to say, but this is what Jesus has done in my life, this incredible life-changing grace that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn. And he wanted to celebrate this wonderful salvation with the people to whom he was writing. It would be like being able to sit down with with a close Christian friend and to just spend your whole time talking to them about all that God has done in your life and all that God has done in their life and how God is to be praised and celebrated for what he'd done. But instead, because of this inward attack coming from within the church. He said, I'm disappointed because I wanted to do this, but instead I'm going to have to take an entirely different path in what I'm about to write. And I'm going to call on you, church, to fight for the faith. And this begins by facing the fight. I must be willing to face the fight. And so Jude is saying to the church, he's saying to everyone that's a follower of Jesus Christ right now, it's go time. It's time to fight. It's time to get off the bench and fight. And we can be extremely passive here in the Canadian culture, can't we? And we are often of the mindset, I don't want to make waves. I just want to lay back and take it easy in life. It doesn't appear, at least on the surface, to affect me too personally, so I'm not going to care about it. That's surely that's someone else's problem, all this stuff that's going on. Judas saying, even if we have other plans in life, even if we are reluctant, we must step up, we must risk, we must be obedient, and we must face the fight and defend the faith. And this is why he says in verse 3, I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend. And this, is not, this kind of language from Jude is not very prevalent in the New Testament. But he's saying this is a fight and this is a faith worth fighting for. In fact, he calls it, if you read in verse 20, your most holy faith. Your most holy faith. The faith that has changed you. And sad to say, this is not the stuff we typically fight over. Stop and think about the last five fights you've had either in your personal life or within the church. Were they worth it? Were they important issues? Maybe they were, I don't know. But were they? Do you even remember what they were? And sometimes we choose to fight and get all hot and bothered over the most trivial of things. He is saying, get off the bench and fight for the faith. 
that which is most important in life. Face this fight with courage and contend. The next thing he says, and this goes to the heart of defining the fight, is choose the right fight. Choose the right fight. Let me remind you of what he's talking about. Beginning in the middle of verse 3 through the end of verse 4. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Choose the right fight. You know, we often think that the real danger is this outward persecution. This is the thing we need to be most concerned about. And of course, there are many places in our world where people are being actively persecuted for their faith, only for their faith. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't done anything uh, inappropriate. All it is is that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's many places in the world where people are imprisoned for their faith, where they don't get that job, where health care is held back from them where they don't get educational opportunities simply because they're followers of Jesus, where they're sold into slavery because they're followers of Jesus, where they're murdered for the faith. This stuff happens every single day in our world. Here in Canada, we don't have that kind of persecution. We have what I would call more low-level inconveniences. We're made fun of in the culture. We are marginalized. We are hassled. We are ignored. And so we don't have that kind of active persecution that happens in many places in our world. But having said that, I absolutely believe, and you've heard me say this many times, that the persecution is coming. Just not yet, but it's coming. And the day to be serious in your faith so that you can stand fast when that day of persecution comes. That day is now. But Jude in his book ignores the obvious active outward persecution they're facing. He doesn't dwell on it at all. And instead he focuses on these people that have secretly, to use his words, secretly slipped in. I call them creepers. And he uses extremely strong language. He says, they are condemned for what they have done. So what is it they have done? They, we talked about this briefly last week, are apostates. An apostate is someone who tries to corrupt or shift the message of Jesus Christ. People who pervert the grace of Jesus Christ. And we need to be fully on alert for this kind of thinking and this kind of behavior. So let's talk about what that is. He says in the, in the latter part of verse 3, this is a faith that was once, that was given once for all, it, it, sorry, I'll say that again, for the faith that was once for all entrusted 
to the saints, the faith that came once for all. In other words, he's saying, never ever entertain any kind of quote unquote new revelation that changes the essence of the faith. I'll give you a practical example. The Book of Mormon is a very practical example of this kind of thinking. It changes fundamentally what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we enter into a relationship with God. Never entertain, Jude says, any type of quote-unquote new revelation that changes the essence of the faith. How we present the gospel changes all the time. How you're seeing this service today, we didn't do this 20 years ago, did we? Not like this. Not in such a large scale. Those kinds of things change all the time. The message of the gospel never changes. And he says these people have secretly slipped in among us. And they say the right kinds of things, but in the text we're told that their behavior betrays them. And Judas saying to us, listen, we never, ever, ever earn our salvation by our actions. It's only through the free gift of grace offered to us by Jesus, based, as we've been talking about all through this service, based on his atoning work on the cross and through his resurrection. It's only based on that that I can enter a relationship with God. But that When that relationship begins, that then translates into a living faith that results in a changed life, a life through the ongoing empowerment of the filling of the Spirit that progressively looks more and more like Jesus. These creepers that have slipped in are portraying to the people within the church that it's okay to take the parts of Jesus that you like and then just leave the rest to the side. And Judas saying, more dangerous than this outward persecution from the Romans and from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, more dangerous than that is this kind of thinking. That I can just take part of Jesus and leave the rest that I'm not so comfortable with on the side. And so he says, as we define the faith, there are four charges in verse four that are brought against these people that have slipped in secretly and are inwardly trying to erode the church. First of all, he says at the beginning of verse four, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures condemn them. And in the Old Testament, we're warned about them. And what he's saying is, listen, when you hear someone teaching, when you see someone saying that they're a follower of Jesus, always compare what's being taught, including by someone like me, or what's being lived out with what Scripture says. Invite the Spirit of God to give us discernment, to illuminate us. Is what's being taught, is what's being said, is what's being lived out aligning with the Scripture? And Judas saying, in the case of these people that have slipped in, obviously that it's not. So always check what you hear and what you see against the gold standard, the word of God. Secondly, he says that they're godless. 
Now, he's not accusing them of being disbelievers in God. They would say, I believe there's a God. But what the heart of this passage is saying is there's a moral rebellion by them against God. So think with me for a second. What he's saying is that morality is directly the issue and indirectly it's a theological issue. Although typically bad theology leads to bad morality and vice versa. So when we, what, what that means is when we have wrong thinking, it leads typically to wrong sinful practices or vice versa. If we have wrong practices, we rationalize and we change our thinking to justify our wrong actions. And this is what these guys have done. Thirdly, third accusation, they saw grace, it says in verse 4, they saw grace as a license for indulgence. Let me read it to you. They are godless men and change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And so they've corrupted the idea of biblical grace. And they focused on the idea that because of Christ's actions, I'm forgiven and this gives me license, in essence, to do whatever I want. And they have this warped, corrupted idea that their idea of corrupted grace gives you the license to sin even more. And it's a license for immorality. Then fourthly, their behavior is a denial of Christ. Let me read the last part of verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So the kind of thinking that might line up with this, just by way of example, is people that say they're followers of Jesus, but then they will say, I can sleep with whoever I want, or I can live with whoever I want. In essence, I can do whatever I want, because Jesus has forgiven me, Jesus is fine with that, and how dare you presume to judge me? And Jude is saying to us, they have neglected the confession of Jesus as Lord. We read these two verses earlier during communion. Let me read them to you again from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And remember, these people are denying the lordship of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. It says in verse 4, if you deny with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You often hear me say this, I say it to you again, it's absolutely crucial. When we receive Christ, we are forgiven for our sin and we receive him as savior based on his work for us on the cross. But equally important, you cannot have one without the other. We are surrendering to him as our Lord. And when we begin this relationship with him, it launches us and it translates into a living faith. And he plans to do that we see all through scripture an ongoing makeover of our life, reorienting our priorities, how we give, how we spend our time, what's important to us, what our values are. 
And it's a very different way of doing life. It's a non-selfish way of doing life. And we are trusting him to be in complete control. These people that have secretly slipped in, these creepers, are calling all of this into question and in fact denying it. Again, let me read to you the last part of verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. They're denying that Jesus is really master and Lord. They're saying this. Is what Jesus did for you really good enough? Don't you want to go out and create your own version of good? Don't you want him to, you know, just pray this prayer and he'll forgive all the bad things you've done, but then you can go out and this gives you license to go out and just create your own version of good. And they assume they know better than Jesus. You see how dangerous this kind of thinking is? They assume they know better than Jesus, that the righteousness that Jesus offers is not sufficient. It needs to be topped up by what the world offers. And we live in a pluralistic society. If we were to go out on the street and begin interviewing people, the vast bulk of them would say, Jesus sounds like an okay guy. I kind of like Jesus. I like him as my friend. It's warm and cuddly. I just want Jesus, if you really drill down with them a little bit, I want Jesus on my terms. And Jude is saying, Jesus on our terms? Nothing could be more dangerous than that. It's way more dangerous than this outward persecution from the Romans and the Pharisees. This interior corrosion of the faith. And these people that secretly creep in and say, how dare you address the sin in my life? They'll say the right things. Oh, Jesus is good. But their ongoing persistent behavior, this deliberate failure to obey is the denial of Christ. Very strong language in verse 4. It's a denial of Christ. Understand something very clearly. Jesus demands, demands, if we're going to follow him, that we believe him and him alone. Jesus demands that we acknowledge that he is completely sufficient. Jesus demands that we forsake all other beliefs and give up completely the claim on our old life, that we follow him and obey. Now, you don't have to believe that. It's a free country. But don't lie to yourself that you're a follower of Jesus if you believe it's Jesus plus something else. You've bought into this corrupted grace, this corrupted type of thinking. But friends, when we see Jesus as all-sufficient, this is what Jews is saying, man, he has changed my life in ways I can't even put into words. I wanted to talk to you about this extensively, but man, oh man, these guys are so dangerous, I have to talk to you about this. Because when we see Jesus as all-sufficient, we see his power. 
And we live like we sang about at the beginning of the service and we're going to sing about again. We live in his victory. And so there's a key question that needs to be answered in your life. Do you believe Jesus is enough? There's a famous hymn we sing called Christ Alone. And this is what Jude is talking about. Christ alone is not only my Savior, but he's my Lord. And once we have defined the fight, once we understand what the fight is, Judah's saying, get into it. When you see people trying to corrupt the faith inwardly, don't stand by passively. Don't let this apostasy be talked about and lived out openly. This is the faith, Jude says, and it is a faith worth fighting for. Last week, I read to you 1 Peter 3.15. I read it to you again as we end. Peter says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And last week, we began by saying we do it with Humility. God bless.